Hey, good day, all. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. You know, if you're a regular here on our live stream, you're saying to yourself, uh, boy, it's a little late in the afternoon, you know, 2 o'clock in the 10th central time zone, uh, 3 o'clock for those people on the on the East Coast. You're probably saying, where's the, uh, where's the Wednesday Common Good Podcast? Well, because we have a special guest today, uh, you're going to be glad that we started late. But I'll also say we were planning to be covering the insurrection hearing, the January 6th select committee hearings, but those were postponed from today until tomorrow. So look forward to that tomorrow afternoon around about the same time. I think they're scheduled at noon central time uh, to get started. But today I'm really thrilled to be talking with Jack Jenkins from uh, Religion News Service and uh, a friend for a long time. Jack, you wrote a great article about how what we're all watching happen on the January 6th Select Committee and because of the insurrection is actually something that um, has its roots in something near and dear to people who watch this stream and listen to this podcast, and that's the role that Christian nationalism has to play in, in all of this. Yeah. One of the interesting things to kind of watch as we are observing these hearings is that it's very clear that the lawmakers for, you know, for their purposes are very um, concentrated on the actual acts that were perpetrated that day and also, you know, um, tying that narrative to former President Trump. Um, and so they're, they're, they're kind of really narrow at this point mm-hmm. in the hearing in terms of what they're talking about. And yet it, they have still not been able to cut out the elements of Christian nationalism um, that still appeared um, on January 6th because they were so ubiquitous. Even in the first hearing, the last shot of one of the, um, the major video montages they did featured one man holding aloft a Trump flag over the masses as they were attacking the U.S. Capitol on January 6th of last year. And next to him was a man waving a um, Christian flag. And mm-hmm. even in the most recent hearing, um, we again, they, they, they featured some interviews with some people in the crowd, and they included a person who had a, um, a, a shirt that read, um, I stand for the flag and kneel for the cross. Wow. And, uh, and then actually there was another interview they had with, uh, it, was a, it was a person that somebody had filmed themselves, and I believe it was a parlor video that this person had filmed talking about what, you know, why they were there that day. And what they leave out is that that person is actually a youth pastor who in that same clip says, I'm probably going to lose my job as a pastor because of this, which is in fact what happened. Um, But I bring those up to kind of say, these are these Mm -hmm. little hints of what, if you looked at the footage on January 6th, it was impossible to ignore the religious expression and religious symbols and um, symbology that were so prevalent during that day. And it's, it's even, you know, working its way into these hearings that are actively trying mm-hmm. to be talking about something else. Yeah, boy, I, I'm so glad you said that and, and that you wrote this article on Religion News Service where you're uh, one, of the, one of the regular uh, journalists. Because some people, I'm in that group, we just pay attention to the religious implications of things, you know, like, I'm a pastor and run a group that talks about religion and politics in America. So I just, I have a keen eye for it. Sort of like when someone, you know, I guess buys a new car pretty soon, they're seeing that car all over the highway, you know, they're like, oh, there's another one of those and another one. And you hadn't noticed them before you were in it. Because I'm in the Christian tradition, my eye is is really set to pay attention to when there's crosses and Christian flags and Jesus, you know, imagery that you include in, uh, 
you know, in the in the article that you wrote, somebody holding a Bible with Trump over their shoulder, or someone with uh, a, a image they've made of Jesus with a "Make America Great" hat on again. I, I mean, I think that's a, supposed to be a picture of Jesus, sort of that classic Jesus uh, kind of imagery. Um, you know, it's it, it it stands out to me. It's it pops out in my mind that that's uh, something that we should be. Um, paying attention to. And it feels like that the January 6th committee has actually kind of gone out of its way to not bring up any of that stuff. Uh, You know, I'm not saying they are trying to hide anything. I just think for a lot of people like, well, the fact that Christians were behind this and that they had a pre-rally on January 5th, that was a part of it. Not all that important, maybe for the overall scope, sort of who motivated it, where all the buses came from for people for the January 6th rally. I thought that was super important. So when I saw this article that you had written, sort of laying this out in really clear terms, the, your article is called "How Christian Nationalism Paved the Way." I thought, um, boy, that's that is a, a really important story. I think to people like me, but also to people beyond me, that that look, we if you wonder how all this stuff gets going, it's because there's people who care about things in addition to seditious takeover of the federal government. Uh, and and that happened to be happened to be Christian nationalism that was that was driving all that. Yeah, and I should note the we do know that members of the committee have recognized this and actually talked about it. Um, for instance, uh, Representative Jamie Raskin um, is a co-founder of the Free Thought Caucus, mm. which is um, caucus in Congress, and they've actually been briefed um, by and I attended that brief as a journalist um, to report mm. on it by the Baptist Joint Committee on Religious Freedom, as well as um, the Freedom from Religion Foundation, um, they wrote a joint report on this exact topic about the role that Christian nationalism played in the lead up to January 6th and on the day itself. And Raskin was a part of that. And later in a public event at Georgetown, he made reference to the role that white Christian nationalist groups played that day. But even more explicit, actually, was probably Representative Adam Kinzinger, um, one of the Republicans on the committee, he was actually asked by Russell Moore in, in a podcast earlier this um, year whether religion played a role that day. His response was, I think 100%, and I hate to say that. And um, and he actually went on to say, he, he mentioned some of the, the pastors who had declared that um, a prophecy that Trump had been re- um, reelected or would remain president. And Adam actually said point blank, had there not been some of these errant prophecies, this idea that God has ordained it to be Trump, I'm not sure January 6th would have happened like it did. Wow. Um, so so they, you know, it does seem to be that the committee members are aware of this fact, whether they'll talk about it as a part of the hearings. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, a, there's some theories that if they did that, they might be, um, uh, you know, people would criticize them for targeting one specific yeah. faith group, yeah. although Christian nationalism actually kind of permeates a, multiple, a multitude of Christian traditions. Um, but uh, that having been said, it does seem to be something they're aware of. Whether yeah. they will address it, we'll see. Yeah, and and look, I mean, I'm I'm all for them being careful on that and not overstating it. You don't really need Congress calling out a particular religious group of any kind for their for for their misbehavior. That's why there needs to be people like us, right, that are going to bring that up. Uh, at least I will say, as someone who is in that tradition, someone from the evangelical tradition, which was the one of the primary groups hijacked by uh, errant religious and political thought that supports Trumpism. I think it's part of our role to to talk about how people from the community that I find myself in the midst of were 
front and center in, in, in all of this. Um, so can you, can you remind people who, you know, for whatever reason, they just haven't gotten around to reading how Christian nationalism paved the way for January 6th on the religion news service, uh, uh site or on the other places where, where this was picked up. Can you walk us through what, uh, what you found when you did the, did your reporting on this and, um, and what, what we need to know about really what was going on with Christian nationalists behind Sure. Um, I, I should caveat this by saying that uh, there's so much to talk about in this topic um, that it's actually hard to narrow it down. Um, that having been said, the, um, you know, uh, for me, you know, Christian nationalism permeated um, Trump's entire tenure in office in his one term. And it was part of his campaign. You know, he was surrounded by, he surrounded himself with a very specific subset of um, primarily evangelical faith advisors who often kind of leaned into Christian nationalism. One of the more prominent examples was actually his first year in office in 2017 when um, the Robert Jeffress, a pastor in Texas, actually loaned out his choir um, to a July 4th event with um, Donald Trump where, you know, I believe Red Ro- his, the Red Robed Choir sang a hymn-like ballad written for the occasion, the refrain of which was, make America great again, and there were American flags and what have you. And, and Jefferson's church have actually leaned into the claim, America is a Christian nation, and, and has preached sermons precisely on that topic. So I give all that context, because that was just like part of the milieu of Trumpism for quite some time. Fast forward to June 1st, um, 2020, which I think is an important date to kind of when we're talking about the trajectory towards January 6th. And that was, of course, when there was the clearing of Lafayette Square um, uh, right outside, um, outside the White House of racial justice demonstrators in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. It's right um, after that, Trump walked across that square and then held up a Bible in front of St. John's Church. Um, now, there was a lot of peculiar things about that moment. So, for instance, um, you know, in order for that to have occurred, there were actually priests, um, at least one priest um, who was still there when the clearing of Lafayette Square occurred. She was there at the behest of the Episcopal Bishop that oversees that church um, and was there aiding demonstrators. And um, that priest was actually among those forcibly expelled from that area by police. Um, and of course, the bishop um, herself, of the, uh, the Episcopal Bishop of Washington, who again oversees St. John's, actually condemned um, that event and told me later that, that it left her horrified. Um, the priest, by the way, told me that it, it, she accused Trump of having turned um, a holy ground into a battleground, is the mm. way that she put it. And there was a seminarian that was, uh, that was with her that was also expelled from that space. But none of that seemed to matter to Trump's evangelical advisors, who you know, um, you know overwhelmingly spoke approvingly of that moment, saying that it was this defense of the yeah. faith. Mark Meadows, Trump's um, chief of staff, later wrote that it was one of his proudest moments. He was never prouder of yeah. Trump than he was. On, in that moment. Um, and, you know, the, the subtext was that the, the, the church had endured a fire the night before, um, but that, again, the people who were involved with that, Trump was not invited to the church. Right. Um, there's no evidence that that was the case for this to have occurred. It looks like it was an unortho- unauthorized visit that was then condemned by the denomination involved. But he wasn't talking primarily to Episcopalians. Trump was really yeah. kind of sending a signal to other um, primarily evangelical Christians who made up a big part of his base. After that moment, um, there were a myriad of things going on. You know, the pandemic was happening and all the different aspects of the pandemic, also the ongoing George Floyd demonstrations. And of course, that moment, Trump's 
poll numbers started to dip. So he did what he had done throughout his time in office, which is actually lean in again to his um, primarily conservative evangelical mm-hmm, Christian mm-hmm, base, mm-hmm. just conservative Christian base in general. He did interviews with conservative Christian outlets, both Catholic and evangelical. Mike Pence went on a Faith in America tour, and all of this kind of led up to the Republican National Convention. Um, where there was a framing that was put forth by multiple speakers, Trump included, that faith was under fire, as they defined it in the United States, that they, that they needed to defend faith. And they had a few different ways that they described that. And, you know, they, they argued that restrictions on worship because of the pandemic were this assault on faith by Democrats. Um, you know, they framed this a very specific way. And I should note, the Democratic National Convention was actually deeply, it was right. more, arguably more overtly religious than the Republican National Convention. That year. Right. Um, but they were still casting Democrats as the enemies of faith. And right after um, the closing event of the Republican National Convention, um, when they, which was at the White House, uh, as people exited from the White House into the streets, there were anti-Trump demonstrations in D.C. And there was um, footage of conservative Christian commentator Eric Metaxas um, punching an anti-Trump protester in the street and running away. And he eventually um, reportedly admitted to that to um, an outlet a few days later. And I kind of bring that up because this theme of like violence as something that could be yeah, justified right. because of Trumpism, this fight existential or literal against opponents became louder and louder. And it kind of came to a head after um, Trump lost the 2020 election and refused to accept those results. Some of the first to come to his Mm -hmm. aid were, again, his conservative Christian supporters. If you look at some of the early events of the Stop the Steal movement, they opened with prayers in treating God to strengthen them for this fight, this this Christian nation Mm -hmm. that they needed Mm -hmm. to protect by overturning the election results. Um, Some of uh, Trump's closest evangelical advisors preached sermons kind of mocking the idea of a Joe Joe Biden presidency or entreating the divine in a Pentecostal charismatic sense to, quote, overturn it, overturn it. They pushed back on whether they were referring to the election or not, but they were also referring to the election in the same paragraph. It was confusing, but this was all part of the... For good communicators, they're like, maybe I just didn't communicate that very clearly. But, you know, they, yeah, many of these people are stellar communicators, actually. And they they were... were And and, and that was, that was actually referring to Paula White there, who by this point was actually a White House official. She was one of Trump's longest um, uh, faith advisors and identified as as his pastor. She's a Florida pastor. Um, By that point, she had become head of the White House Mm -hmm. faith office. Um, so then again, on in December, we started having what were called Jericho marches. These were these kind of ways of showing your protest against the 2020 election results. We had one in Pennsylvania where they processed around the Capitol there, protesting the election results there. And then they had a large one in um, Washington, D.C. in December 12th. And in seeing that event was, again, Eric Metaxas. And a myriad of people spoke at that event, including Michael Flynn. Um, there was footage of that moment that got a lot of attention of uh, what looked like the presidential helicopter flying over the event and there being cheers. Um, the head of the Oath Keepers, um, Stuart Rhodes, who's since been you know charged with um, seditious conspiracy because of his role on January 6th, um, his alleged actions there, he spoke and actually threatened but the potential for a bloody war if um, the results aren't overturned or if mm. he, what he referred to as their Insurrection Act being invoked. 
And all of these things happened, of course. And then also present that day were the Proud Boys and, um, you know, this, this right-wing extremist group. And, no, well. uh, and as they marched off into the streets of Washington, D.C. that night, Alex Jones, the noted conspiracy theorist, um, actually prayed over them. He said that they were, you know, marching off to take the streets back. He was, he was doing this prayer out in front of a hotel that evening. Um, and the Proud Boys had actually had their own prayer the night before when they had arrived in D.C. They had gathered this footage of this. Um, they had shouted to the sky, we love you, God. Um, they had con- one of their leaders had compared their sacrifice, as they put it, to that of Jesus's crucifixion. Um, and of course, then they they marched off into the street. Now, what they actually did was uh, tear Black Lives Matter signs off of multiple churches and set one of them on fire. Two of those churches were historic black churches. Um, but again, the, the Christian nationalism was just part of this mm-hmm. entire conversation. And then you fast forward again to January fifth where uh, there was another Jericho march outside the U.S. Capitol. I was there for that, covering it. Um, again, you had people processing around, holding images of Trump's face, singing the, the hymn, How Great Is Our God, mm. um, you know, saying that they were hoping that the elections would be overturned in a spiritual sense, um, at, or in a, I mean, a literal overturning, but in a yeah. spiritual um, element that was a part of that. Um, they were singing hymns and, and preaching sermons that evening, Greg Locke, this very controversial pastor in um, Tennessee, actually prayed for the Proud Boys um, and kind of spoke, you know, it kind of lauded them for their work. And then, of course, the next day was January 6th itself, where, as mentioned, um, the religious elements were difficult to ignore. So I give that long-winded kind of lead up. And I'm actually a lot of other elements here, including some texts between Mark Meadows and Jenny Thomas, among other things, in which, you know, appeals to the divine were mentioned to kind of help explain that, you know, Trumpism and the trajectory towards January 6th had a lot of different elements that were part of it. QAnon conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories divorced from any specific movement other than just denying the election. Um, any number of other elements. But I think that it's difficult to understand all of it unless you understand the connecting mm. glue that Christian nationalism seemed to play to pull a, a disparate array of voices into the same room. And I think that that December 12th Jericho March, when so many different folks are represented on that stage, is a good example of the power that Christian nationalism seemed to play with these communities. Well, I'd love to chat about each segment of, of these because I think they're they're worthwhile. And if someone's looking for a, a list, they should find your article, How Christian Nationalism Paved the Way for January 6th, because it it articulates these with links and, and other places. It's a really tremendous resource. You you have sort of a subtitle to the article where it says the president, Trump, seemed to frame himself as leading an existential fight against liberal foes defending America from an attack on the Christian faith. It, it's not possible to describe the reason that a lot of religious Christian religious people voted for Trump without recognizing that Donald Trump said that America was attacking Christianity and he was going to defend it and that they expected him to defend it as uh, through the belief that it holds a unique place in the history and therefore in the DNA of this, of this uh, society. Like, and your article does a good job, but there's no way to really understand what's going on with Trump without really even taking it all the way back to people talking about there being a war on Christmas and, 
you know, just mm-hmm. a lot of conspiracy theories about how religion didn't have a place in the Obama administration. And, you know, I mean, just mm-hmm. sort of the old classic tropes that, that Democrats are godless and Republicans are, are Christian, uh, that, that thing really does persist for for a lot of people. Can you say something about that that sentence that you had written that the president seemed to frame himself as leading an existential fight against liberal foes defending America from an attack on the Christian faith? Yeah, I mean the the symbolism that I think sends that message most clearly was you know Trump holding that Bible up in front of that church while sirens wailed in the background. There were still wisps of of pepper spray yeah. and pepper balls and what have you. Um, and tear gas that was, we found confirmed later, was used by some of those involved in the clearing of the square in the surrounding area. You know, that that symbolism was clearly very important to Trump. Right. And, um, and, and can I just note by- that what's not in the picture that's on the screen and the picture a lot of people have seen, this sort of disgusting picture of Trump with a Bible in his right hand holding it up and, you know, the framed with the St. John's uh, Parish House church sign behind it. Off to Donald Trump's right, when you look at the larger you know, zoomed out photo, you see not only Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, but you see General Milley, the head of the Joint Chief Chiefs of Staff. So the the head military person. You see the head of the Pentagon. Like Donald Trump not only brought himself and I think his daughter and maybe even Kellyanne Conway. I might be wrong about Kellyanne Conway. Um, but he brought out his administration officials and military officials to stand next to him. So what's going on here is all an act of symbolism, right? Because a lot of people on all sides of the political spectrum like to say something like, well, don't, don't worry about what they say and all their symbols and all the thing. Just look at what they do. Well, some of us recognize that saying is doing, that symbols are reality, that that's what organizes our lives. And that's how we, we understand ourselves. Do you think there was something particular about Trump not only having the Bible and his role as the president, having cleared, you know, cleared the crowd with a use of force that he did? I would call it violence, a use of violence uh, to clear that that crowd of protesters, and then to have the military right there with his administration with him. Do, do you think that was particularly something that rang true for the Christian uh, Christian nationalist subculture? One of the interesting things about that moment. So there is. A couple of different debates here, right? Like the um, the Trump administration has long held that the clearing of Lafayette Square wasn't connected to the um, the, the the church event, but it remains true that had um, Lafayette Square not been cleared, which was done by the federal government, like that's that's enough for dispute. It was the Trump, them acting on the on behalf of the Trump administration that this occurred, and that it would not have been possible for Trump to walk across Lafayette Square towards the church, right? So um, irrespective of what order all of those pieces came together, um, the end result is that there were um, you know, citizens who were demonstrating who were forcibly cleared from an area who a group of people who had, and even Mark Meadows made this connection in his, in his book, um, you know, kind of suggesting that people of that ilk are the ones that burned the church, right? Suggesting that they are all one monolith of people who had, who had lit that fire than before. Um, and that, Trump showing up with this show of force holding that Bible um, was kind of this this symbolism of strength. And then what happened after that? Anybody who lives in D.C. Um, is painfully aware of how the rest of that evening went. It was mm-hmm. one of the most int- – I mean, in my entire time in D.C., I've never seen that much military presence um, in the district. And it was, it was you know, framed at the time as this show of force against this sort of – 
as the Trump um, administration and officials and allies described it, this sort of um, rabble, as it were. Yeah. And the fact that the symbol that came out of that day, um, in addition to um, images of helicopters and military vehicles and military personnel, is the president um, holding up yeah. a Bible in front of a church. I mean, that very clearly sends a signal to a lot of his yeah. supporters and, that and he you, is you, a defender of faith. That's right. And you, you mentioned... Uh, the Bishop of the Washington Episcopal Diocese, which is the ecclesial structure that's in charge of that church. And the bishop there is Marianne Edgar Buddy, and she's uh, a tremendous person uh, and, and all. She made comments that night on the news and the next morning, and I want to just play that because she, she reflects uh, her both response that evening and also how she was feeling the next day about what this meant to have the president of the United States come across a plaza that had just been cleared by force by federal agents and then to stand in front of it for a photo op, which there's no, look, I don't think, and I've done all the checking I can, I don't think Donald Trump Trump had made the short walk from the White House across the beautiful Lafayette Square to attend services at St. John's. I think maybe before his inauguration, they had a brief meeting there. But I think in the years between his inauguration and June 1st, I don't think he had made the stroll across the way to participate in the services at St. John's. Do you, do you know any different than that? I, I know that um, he definitely attended services there on inauguration day. And yes. that was because Robert Jeffress actually preached a sermon to him that day. Um, I believe it was entitled When God Chooses a Leader. Um, and uh, that was... You know, the day before he, he had his inauguration. Whether or not he went between that time and June 1st actually is a really good question. I don't think he walked across. That was a whole conversation during the Obama era. Totally. Obama would walk across as opposed to taking a car. Yes. Um, and, but that's a good question as to whether or not Trump had attended services prior to that point at that specific at church. That church. He sometimes went to church in Florida and other places, but that's a good question. I don't know the answer off the top of my head. Well, uh, we could check probably. I bet that's a, that's a findable. So I'm going to assume that if he did, it's not publicly known that he He'd ever attended the church. So what's he doing, doing it on that particular day? And the question was raised to him, is it your Bible? Like all these things mattered, right? Like where'd the Bible come from? Well, actually his daughter found the Bible. And and, and just a little tangential side note for people that haven't had the privilege of being in Washington, D.C. Before a lot of the barricades had to go up to protect the White House uh, and then ultimately to protect Lafayette Square, um, you realize just how small of a space it is between the White House with a, a yard and then across a small road, a beautiful little city park, and then to this church. It's quite a pleasant walk. I've walked it plenty of times. I mean, somebody could. It's it's very Washington D.C. for all of its sense of power and uh, you know federal government size and kind of feeling of apparatus. It's a sweet little town, and this backyard of the White House, you know, this Lafayette Park kind of feels like the park right across the street from the house, right? If anyone knows, a, has a park across the street from their house, it feels like that. So, and it's a very, uh, a very public place. I've done many events there, some political, some not political. Uh, it's, it's people's place. And the fact that protesters were out there wanting to raise their voice because people in the White House can hear you when you're in Lafayette Park. I mean, that's part of the reason you go out there and you yell because the windows in the White House, they're not that soundproof and you can you can be heard, right, from, from out in Lafayette Park. So that sort of sets the context for all of this. And that's that proximity between that church 
and the White House, it's always been tension for the Episcopal Church, and I know for St. John's Meeting House, you know, building itself and for the parish there, they're, they're always having to figure out, like, how do we not, because we're so close, how do we not just do the bidding of any president, but to do our job and our role? Long, mm-hmm. long lead in to why Bishop Marianne Edgar Buddy makes the comments that she did, and here she is on Good Morning America the, uh, the, the, the next day. Well, first of all, this is an excruciating moment, a crisis moment in our country where we need healing, where we need reconciliation, and we need justice. Um, And the president, um, after uh, speaking the remarks that you summarized and clearing with tear gas and riot-geared police the the park and the courtyard of our church, stood in front of St. John's and held up a Bible as if as if it were spiritual um, uh, validation and justification for a message that is antithetical to the teachings of Jesus and to the God of justice. And so I felt in no uncertain terms that I had to disassociate us from that um, symbolic gesture and to speak um, and to speak a word of uh, of justice and peace uh, to the nation. Now, all all religious traditions know the power of symbolism, but I'll tell you what, Episcopalians, they really take their symbolism seriously, right? They're not messing around when it comes to like the symbol of faith in people's lives, baptism and communion and, and liturgy and the buildings and the outfits. Like this really matters and it and it really should matter. And that's part of what this Christian nationalism thing does. It and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, Jack, as a, as a professional journalist in the religion world. Christian nationalism doesn't even accept all Christians as part of the Christian nationalist movement. Like, it's it's sectarian in addition to being uh, partisan, in, in my view. Yeah, I'm interested I mean, in your thoughts on that. No, I mean, this is, this is one of the fascinating things about Christian nationalism. And I should note for listeners, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of the broader top level definition of Christian nationalism that I operate with is the belief that America was founded as a Christian nation and that it should either remain as such or that it needs to return to that after having deviated from it. And I actually think the second half of that sentence is even more important than the first. There can be some debate about precisely what it means to be founded as a Christian nation or what that looks like, but that active step of wanting to return it or create it or make it a Christian nation can be this really powerful driver. And it's kind of what differentiates this sort of modern iteration of Christian nationalism from some other, um, you know, for, for lack of a better term, more um, low-key versions that have kind of permeated in and out throughout American history. There have also been very extremist versions. The Ku Klux Klan is an unabashedly Christian nationalist group that also was white supremacist, right? Um, but I feel like, you know, one of the folks, and one of the, the groups that have long decried Christian nationalism in all of its forms are those who are left out of its visions, right? Those who are on, who are not Christian. Um, but, you know, what's implicit in Trumpian Christian national, nationalism in this, uh, this new iteration is that it, it does not seem to take seriously um, the beliefs of Christians who disagree with it, right? You know, the, the, the idea that, that Christians are under attack because of, for instance, um, you know, 
you know, impositions on houses of worship um, during the pandemic of wanting to limit the size or the ability for them to gather. I mean, that's not uniformly believed one way or the other within Christianity. You have a wide variety of different perspectives on those policies within Christians, including Christians that were like super gung-ho about not meeting in person, right? Um, and but, but even beyond those kind of um, minor policy differences, I mean, you know, for me, what I found really interesting on January 6th, I had been down there the day before um, at the Capitol the day before. On January 6th, I was actually at what was the only in-person counter-protest that I'm aware of that day, who were protesting against that. Mm. And um, and that's partly because the mayor had dissuaded people from staging counter-protests and that a lot of progressive organizations had also dissuaded their people from doing that. But one of the only major counter-protests was a small collection of interfaith clergy that were gathered around a Black Lives Matter sign outside one of the churches that had had their signs repeatedly torn down um, since December. And, um, you know, in the midst of that circle, they were praying for, you know, reconciliation. They were praying for peace. They were kind of decrying um, the Christian nationalism they had seen implicitly, later explicitly. Um, But in the midst of that prayer circle, um, some people in Trump gear actually uh, pushed through the circle and then mockingly reenacted the death of George Floyd in front of the clergy. Wow. And then they went across the street, and there was another church that had just unfurled new Black Lives Matter signs and did the same thing on the steps of that church. Now, those individuals, I don't know if they espouse Christian nationalism or agree with it at all, but the idea that you know you could be part of the Trump and, Trumpian Christian nationalist movement where those sorts of things happened, right? Where the Black Lives Matter signs of these churches were torn down and burned by Proud Boys. Um, but then, you know, a few weeks later, you have people like Greg Locke praying for the Proud Boys and you know, lamenting that their leader had recently been arrested because of the burning of that church sign, right? Like these historic black churches weren't seen as, you know, as a part of this broader um, Christian yeah. vision that these people were articulating. In fact, some people have even heard that the head of the Proud Boys was not allowed to be in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, and it's because he was arrested for those actions, right? That's right. You hear that, you heard that story if you listen to the hearings, but this connects all those pieces back together that it's those actions you know, that, that he was arrested for. So it's just so incredibly enshrined in this in this Trump movement, at least as it was seen, you know, as you articulated from June 1st through January 6th, like that period is so identifiable. And, and I think it's something I haven't been able to talk about a lot. Like there's, you know, it's been a fascinating thing. I spent a lot of my, I cover religion and politics, right? So like the, the I, I, I'm talking to members of all of these different groups to try to like understand their perspective. And, you know, some of the loudest voices decrying Christian nationalism are prominent clergy, right? <laughs> like, and, and they're the ones who are like very out front and pushing this. And, um, and they're, they don't get as near as I can tell traction among a lot of these, you know, groups where, you know, that are espousing or among these leaders that are espousing Christian nationalism. They're often ignored outright. And as that is happening, they'll do things like, you know, make blanket statements about liberals or progressives and say that they are godless, or they'll dismiss their faith as if they are worshiping government, as they put it, um, as if they are not actually Christian. And there's a whole like series of theological and historical arguments for how this came to be and stuff like that. But for me, it's been really fascinating to watch. Like I will leave a worship service um, from one group and go to another one and listen to them say how they don't think those people worshiping down the street are actually religious. 
And, um, and this has been a dynamic that, that was part of Christian nationalism for some time. And, um, throughout the Trump era, and I will, I won't fast forward too much, but it's also a part of the Christian nationalism that has kind of materialized since Mm -hmm. January 6th. Mm -hmm. There's a whole dialogue about that too. Um, and, and I, I think it's worth noting that simply being a Christian um, doesn't mean that Christian nationalists and being a self-professed Christian doesn't mean that Christian nationalists will necessarily see you that way. And one other point I'll close on this is that I mentioned that shirt. I kneel, I stand for the um, flag and I kneel for the cross. Um, There are entire Christian traditions in the United States that have been here for a long time where that has not been the case for a long time. Right. Um, If you go to Mennonite colleges, um, they don't necessarily wave the flag on campus at all. And they do not play the national anthem during their um, their sporting events because of their religious traditions. Many of the people who Mm -hmm. knelt during um, the national anthem over the last few years actually cited their faith as inspiring their protest. Um, they often their Christian faith as inspiring their protest, and um, and these folks just don't become part of the dialogue right. when uh, Christian nationalists or folks who are who are ascribing to that ideology or participating in it. Um, there, these other Christian voices just don't come up, and 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 that all circles back to your original point, which is that you know Christian nationalists don't really necessarily see everyone in the same Christian umbrella. And even the concept of Christian nationalism, the idea that America was founded as a Christian nation, is predicated on the idea that everyone agreed what Christian meant at the time, yeah. which was not true. No, the Puritans landed here fleeing religious persecution, and notwithstanding the things they did to indigenous and Native American groups, they also like were hanging Quakers within a generation That's because right. they worshipped differently than the Puritans. And so the early American era was a, a period in which the Christians did not agree, agree that each other were adequately Christian. Yeah. Um, but so it, that tradition continues to this day. It sure does. And look, I mean, it's easy to want to argue, and and I've felt the, the want to do this, to try to say, look, these people are not Christian. But the truth of it is, they are. Christianity is a self-proclaiming faith. Nobody gets to tell somebody else if you are or not, right? Just sort of the rules of what it means to be generally Christian is if you say you are, well, there's no there's no ruling group that says, I'm sorry you didn't check the, you know, the agreement box at the bottom of the of the form. No one can say you're not. So what we have is a lot of kinds of Christianity in America. We've had a lot of kinds of Christianities through history. It's one of the things people that study religion realize is from the time that you know they started putting a Bible together and you had four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from four different Christian communities, you've had a plurality of different opinions about what it is to be Christian, right? So that's just true, and America has lots of versions of Christianity. And it doesn't map that being a Christian nationalist or believing in Christian nationalism doesn't map with whether someone or a group of people are Christians or not. I know a lot of Christians who are totally opposed to Christian nationalism and people who are like, you know, I'm really not Christian, but this is a Christian nation. You know, like they just, they're just, it's just the thing they've been told and they've assumed all along and feel like it should be. That's part of what makes so much of this confusing, right? Is that, and you've done such a good job of articulating here and in your writing that, look, whether you're going to make an argument about the history or not, what's functioning right now is that there are people wanting power in the government that have power in the government who are saying in really new ways, 
we think that the power of the federal government should be on the side of Christian people to reestablish some kind of a Christian life. That comes in subtle ways. You know, your news outlet just produced an article that I read today about the the pastor of one of the big Southern Baptist churches and almost got kicked out because Saddleback Church chose to ordain women. Um, that The pastor of that church, someone named Rick Warren, uh, said, hey, we all need to stick together and fight against the evil that's in this country, right? We need to kind of make the country righteous again, right? Like that stuff is just all around. And I'm in super progressive Christian circles. Sometimes I even hear people in progressive Christian circles say things like, our government needs to follow these moral edicts and Bible things better, like love your neighbor and care for the least of these and all of those. I get really uncomfortable when I hear people say, like, I think a voter should be motivated to vote for someone they think is going to bring an outcome. But I don't think we should be asking our government to take Matthew 5 or Romans 12 or, you know, Revelation 6 as as it's as it's talking orders. We, we have a problem figuring out how to talk about religion and politics in America and Christian nationalism is a consequence of all that. Okay, that was a lot. But do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think about it like that? I, I know you know you're a journalist. I'm I'm a opinion maker here. Uh, do, you, do you have thoughts on any of that? I mean, I think one of the really interesting things about covering Christian nationalism, I, you know, I'll get questions about it, right? Like you'll hear people kind of say, "Is this a, really a thing that exists, or is this just kind of like a, a vague concept yeah. with no real contours?" Um, and I think you know. It's one of those things that when you go and see it, like when you're a reporter and you go to one of these events and you see it expressed, it makes a lot more sense because the reality is that there are a myriad of Christian nationalisms, right? They actually like can look different and they are expressed differently even within traditions, right? There's a whole wing of actually conservative Catholic Christian nationalism and, and even sub varieties of that that look different, um, some of which are old and some of which are very, very new. And, um, and who were, who were very active on January 6th as well. Um, so it's not exclusively to um, evangelicals. There's also mainline iterations of this. There's some argument that it was like a, a low key, lower key version of this was part of mainline traditions for quite some time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but what, when we're looking at this modern era, when we're looking at Christian nationalism in the context of the Trump administration and, and after he left office, I think for me, what I, it's difficult to kind of get across to people is that Christian nationalism, while it can look different per person or per tradition or per organization, it has enough connecting tissue that it can bring together a somewhat theologically disparate group of people into the same room. And, and for me, one of the most preeminent examples of that is actually what happened once the insurrectionists stormed the Senate chamber on January 6th. Um, and you know, there was this moment where they were, they were in there and, um, one of the guys started saying, Jesus Christ, we invoke you, we invoke your name. Amen. And then this individual, um, who was wearing horns and um, had a variety of tattoos and blue in his face was like, oh, that's great. And so he's self described QAnon shaman. His religious beliefs, by the way, as he's expressed them are not they do not fit within many traditional forms of Christianity. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, he pulls from a variety of different um, traditions. It's in many ways syncretic. But the prayer that he offered that day, 
invoked Jesus Christ specifically. And it was also kind of lauding the efforts of those who had participated in the insurrection, you know, kind of putting forth this idea that they were pushing back against, you know, some sort of evil, um, that they were helping correct the country's mistakes, as it were. And in the crowd were at least three or four people that have been um, public about uh, what motivated them that day, including a person from the Deep South who said that he had, you know, he had gone there. He just wanted to plead the blood of Jesus there that day. Um, kind of a more traditional Southern evangelical. You had a person from the Midwest who similarly um, said that that prayer was like a, the, one of the pinnacle moments for him of where we are as a movement. I believe those are his words. Um, and that that said a lot to him. And these are not people who, if you sat down and had talked about the theology of the QAnon shaman, they would necessarily agree. In fact, even those two individuals I just mentioned might actually have a lot of disagreement about in, you know, a variety of theological things. But what they were united in was the myriad of conspiracy theories that had come out about in the aftermath of the election and this idea that America is a Christian nation and it needs to be protected and that Trump was part of that protection. Those are, you know, they, they both made references to similar things yeah. and elements of Christian nationalism in their own remarks. So, um, so that is what Christian nationalism can do. That's the power of it is that even when it seems disparate and fuzzy at the edges, mm. it's, it's, it, that's actually a feature, not a bug for a lot of its devotees is what allows it to coalesce wow. very different groups and movements into the same place for common cause. Well, that is just, uh, that's one of those phrases that someone uses that just opens a door in one's mind. Um, like the idea that there are multiple versions of Christian nationalism, both over time and currently, and that it has a grand central station function to it, that people might be coming from different places and going to different places, but they find themselves you know, at that grand junction, at that airport. When I'm often traveling in airports, I kind of look around and I think, wow, we're all right here. But like only a few of us came from where, hardly anyone's coming from where I'm coming from and going to where I'm going, but we're all here right now. The Christian nationalism is like that, right? It's, it's that place. And the Trump administration chose to utilize that in the past mm-hmm. and currently. I keep up on what they do, their Faith in America tours. Like they know that the coalition that the Trump administration used while in office needed in its election and lost in its re-election was social conservatives, people that felt out of the political system, and Christian religious conservatives. And normally Republican candidates feel like they have to give up a little something to get one or, you know, get all of those groups. And uh, the primary center of their organizing has been religious communities, churches, and so on, which is why... You know, I could see so many photos of Trump surrounded by faith leaders and their access and their administration, frankly. I mean, you look at the Trump administration and it was full of people who were very well known in different Christian traditions from Betsy DeVos and Ben Carson and Mike Pompeo and Mike Pence. And like some people don't know who these people are. They have no idea. They didn't know that Ben Carson, you know, the heart surgeon who's the head of, you know, HUD, also wrote Christian books about his Seventh-day Adventist faith and was a big seller in the Christian tradition. No idea that all these other messages were being sent out. And a lot of people ignore the power of religion in, in politics, or maybe you'd see it in the black church's impact on Democratic candidates. 
it exists very powerfully in, in Republican subculture as well. And those people were called into action on January 6th. And in my opinion, Jack, I'm interested in hearing your, your take on this. A lot of people in that crowd on January 6th, now whether or not those people extended their stay into the Capitol, I don't know how many of them did that, but people that were there on January 6th got on buses that started in their church parking lots. Like churches were organizing people. It was a religious movement that literally moved people to get to, to, to January 6th. Is that accurate, what I've just claimed there, that you couldn't have had January 6th turn out the way that it was without? I mean, the, I mean, if you did to hear Adam Kinzinger say it, he said something very similar mm. to what you just said, right? That, that the religious dynamic here was really powerful. The answer to your question, so... I remember I spoke to this one woman um, on January 5th. He was there for a Jericho march. And um, and she had just led a prayer. Like I just watched her lead a prayer with a group of people, you know, referencing the um, the election and what have you. And when I spoke to her, you know, she repeated conspiracy theories about the pandemic and that she believed that, you know, that, that Christianity should be at the forefront of the nation. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Um, but the, but then I kind of asked her, I'm like, what, what drew you here? Was the Jericho March, what drew you here? And she was like, you know, I, I, this is her words. I followed a lot of different agendas to get here. Uh, and what I think that's helpful for people to understand because it was a lot of things at once, right? Like if you went to the Jericho March website, um, in addition to like advertisements for shofars, um, you know, they were they were they were pushing stop the steal. Like that was like part of the 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 idea. Stop the steal was was this big umbrella of, um, series of events. But if you went to stop the steal events, you were going to see them led in prayer at the outset, right? And that the Jericho March was a component of that. So you know, we know that you know major figures help fund some of the buses there who were also um, um, reiterating Christian nationalism. Which churches and whether churches like specific church groups like um, funded their own buses, I don't have a clear answer for that. I would not be surprised if that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe, someone can check me on this, my understanding is that Doug Mastriano paid for some buses and, and he is a very um, largely described as a Christian nationalist. He rejects that term. Oh, um, yes. But... Um, but I mean, I don't want you to speak for the man, but, but why would he, what, what does he refer to himself as just a historian? Is is he just think that his description of the history of America and its future is just, he's just ahistorical and just describing calm balls and strikes. Is that his view? Well, the curious thing about the term Christian nationalism is now actually in the last few weeks, we've started having people really passionately claim it as an identifier, particularly... Marjorie Taylor Greene sent out a big thing about this, trying to say to people, hey, if you are one, be proud. It's something you should be proud of. Uh, And extremist groups like America First are actually like, um, they they are making memes about it, Mm -hmm. um, invoking it. Um, but you know, it's, it was more kind of a political descriptor, right? And I'm not drawing a one-to-one correlation between these terms. I'm just using this to help explain. Like, you know, people don't usually identify as extremist or author- authoritarian, as it were. Um, but that's like a descriptor that 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 sociologists and historians and political scientists and journalists use to describe certain behavior. And Christian nationalism was kind of that um, term used mm. by sociologists to kind of describe people who you know, uh, trend towards a series of beliefs. Mm-hmm. And depending on which sociologist you spoke to, there was some slight difference about what those were, but they generally all led in the same direction. So what that means is that it was more of a description of behavior as opposed to a self-identifier. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean when asked 
like, do you think America is a Christian nation? Do you think America should be a Christian nation? That people wouldn't yeah. answer both of those questions. Yes. Um, well, so that's, that's the more thing about- that we've, you know, we've done a lot of work. We actually have a curriculum coming out on how try to help churches and groups and individuals uh, with friends to understand and talk about Christian nationalism. That's one of the things that I've had to wrap my head around is that you, if you ask someone, are you a Christian nationalist? They say no. And then you describe what a lot of us call Christian nationalism. And they say, well, I do agree with all those things, but that concept and that title is something that they've tended to reject. I think, you know, I'm noticing the same thing that people are starting to talk about it. Um, and I don't know that it does any good to refer to someone as a Christian nationalist um, if they don't want to self-identify. But I'll tell you that the Trump administration under, and the Trump campaign understood them as Christian nationalists, I, I think. like I, I don't know that they only took that. I, I don't know that they all see, see that as a negative term. I, I was a little surprised. I posted a video yesterday of a conversation that I had with Proud Boys in a bar in Florida in 2020. and. Mm. Uh, it was debating Trump and racism and Black Lives Matter and so on. They they came to try to disturb one of our events in Florida, and we scheduled to have a debate afterward. And so that's that's the video. And I was surprised because I thought at that time, and even more so now, that people who are Proud Boys wouldn't admit to it. You know that it was kind of a an association you kept quiet. But when I asked one of the people there, I said, "Well, are, are you a Proud Boy?" And he goes, "Oh yeah, for sure." And he leaves up his sleeve and shows this tattoo. And then another man in the crowd shouts, I'm the second in command of the Proud Boys of this region. I need everybody in this room to be quiet and stop interrupting. And like, very proud of it. Um, A lot of us would think that calling someone a Proud Boy or a member of the Proud Boys is some disparaging term. Some people take it as quite positive. So if someone thinks that if someone just says, I'm not a Christian nationalist, then they're not. Um, I don't know what you do with that. Like, maybe they're not. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's, it's the idea of whether you're expressing, I mean, whether or not someone, like you said, the distinction between whether you are a Christian nationalist as an identity, which some people do identify that way, or whether you're expressing Christian nationalist sentiment, right? Um, you know, our political terms are always debated. We don't actually have a uniform, you know, agreement about what liberal or conservative is, or even what Christian is. Yeah. And so, or even what a Democrat <laughs> is. Yeah, or a Republican. Yeah. Is, there's... If there's one thing about, um, you know, looking at the expanse of Christian history and political history, it's one of perpetual debates. Yeah. But, I, you know, I think for... I have a friend who often jokes, people, I'm not a Christian, but sometimes I act like one, so you might catch me. <laughs> you know, like, which I think is a pretty good way to describe a Christian life. Christian nationalism as a category is um, most helpful in, in, you know, examining behavior and political trends. And mm. while there are certainly people who seem to identify... As Christian nationalist, you know, at the end of the day, for my purposes as a reporter, I'm I, I am interested if you self-identify as a Christian nationalist because that's interesting. Um, but I'm most interested in what is bringing these people together, yeah. right? Like, what is this this glue that unites people? I'm interested in that of in in every way, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's that's part of when I, I cover religion and politics. What unites people? What inspires them? What drives them is a prevailing question. Yeah. And Christian nationalism is just one of a kaleidoscope of ideologies mm. um, and identities and religious beliefs that um, seem to drive individuals. So I think thinking about Christian nationalism that way, in fact, you know, it's arguably most helpful to think about it as um, a, a worldview or like, you know, huh. a shared worldview among different people um, than whether or not they wear it on their sleeves. Although, again, we should keep track of those who do because that's going to be interesting moving forward. Hmm. Jack, do you think... Um with the other extremism that's gone on, right? Yesterday or maybe two days ago, we heard about a group of people, men who joined together in Idaho and were caught in the back of a truck 
preparing to go and apparently mm-hmm. violently try to stop pride rallies, um, LGBTQ plus pride rallies. It feels like we're on the cusp of something more violent than we have wanted to imagine in the last few decades, starting to feel like previous eras of, of the United States. I can't imagine that big, violent uprisings could happen in the United States without there being religious justification. Like, you just can't motivate people to violent actions in mass without that. We've always had it, whether it's been war that we've gone to or internal fights or or work toward good things, too. Like, there's a you have to bring something more to it. Um, so it feels like this Christian nationalism rise... It, it, is uh, just has a lot of potential danger to it. Um, but I don't like thinking about this country like that. I mean, I want to imagine a, a more beautiful world where that's not possible. Do, do you think we're in a particularly dangerous place? Do you think we've just passed through a dangerous place and we can look back and sort of analyze it now? Or do you think maybe all this is more overblown than we need to be worried about? Well, the meta question of, of the state of the republic <laughs> its one um, that may be above my pay grade. Uh, but I, what I can say is that, you know, I'm a religion reporter. I'm a religion and politics reporter. Um, and more recently, I'm kind of an extremism reporter, too. And wow. that is just like part it of it something. now is that um, that that that. You know, religion has always been an element of extremism. Again, I mentioned the KKK, which is an ex- explicit about religious component of their hateful ideology. Um, but the it's become something that's that for me to cover religion and politics, I have to really note the, the these groups. You know, what happened out in Idaho, um, actually I have a story dropping shortly after this conversation about that. Um, you know, there were, uh, um, you know, right-wing groups that were pushing people there. I mentioned America First, that's led by an individual named Nick Fuentes, who... Yeah. Um, in addition to being widely decried as a white nationalist, um, also kind of, you know, he's sharing Christian nationalist memes. And I mean that they have the word Christian nationalist in the meme now. Um, and, and he was encouraging people to go there as part of that protest to do a rosary walk again, kind of the Catholic persuasion on this. Um, one, I published a piece earlier this year where, you know, uh, extremists, experts, experts on extremism told me that they have seen a notable rise in the last year and a half um, to two years of Christian nationalism, uh, you know, flaring up among extremist groups, them really kind of embracing it. Like it wasn't not a factor before is kind of the suggestion, but it's like it's 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 been hit with jet fuel in mm-hmm. recent mm-hmm. months and years um, in terms of its prevalence among these communities and groups. Um, and, you know, the you have some of the, I mean, one of the interesting subtexts for all of this is that it, it, it posits that um, there are these Christian right-wing groups and then there are LGBTQ people at pride events and, and other LGBTQ events that they are in contradistinction against. Never mind the fact that there's actually multitudes of denominations and Christians yeah. at this point who affir- openly affirm LGBTQ identities and relationships ordain people to those and um, officiate the services for those you, 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 um, what have you. Like these are not mutually exclusive groups in terms of um, how people self-identify and express, but we are seeing rising tensions um, in within extremist groups where they're invoking Christian nationalism as a component uh, 
and organizing yeah. element um, of these sorts of campaigns. And I do think that is particularly concerning for a lot of people, especially since, and I would defer to extremism experts on this. So I'm, I'm only saying a few things I've read. I'm not drawing a full picture here. We, there I did read recently that we've seen some chapters of like Proud Boys actually increase. Um, I've been trying to pair that with also conversations that they have had trouble recruiting. And I think that might've been, you know, the ones that were arrested by the FBI. Um, but the, uh, but I, I do think these are things to watch where, um, moving forward, if, if we are already seeing flare ups and violence, right, the proud boys out West, um, you know, we, a few months ago, we kind of talked about this clash that happened between proud boys yeah. and anti-fascist demonstrators kind of happened in the street almost without, um, any support from police in one direction or another, you know, I'll note that there were people preaching on stage at that proud um, boys event earlier. And that some of those proud boys in the logo patch on their shoulder now just put a cross there. And that wasn't necessarily true um, a few years ago. And so that's to your point, you know, whether that's proving to be an organizing rep- principle or recruitment tool, what have you, um, of these different groups around Christian nationalism, even to their platforms, the the head of Gab, the um, you know alternative social media platform that um, mm-hmm. is known to be a haven for extremists, has actually leaned very um, aggressively by name into Christian nationalism. The news section of that website is is now a lot of different theological writings and um, um, political writings about that. And he, of course, also spoke at the event um, hosted by America First. Um, you know, in Nick Fuentes that Marjorie Taylor Greene also spoke at, right? So uh, all of that has led, um, set off alarm bells with um, extremism experts that I've spoken with. What that looks like moving forward, I don't know. It's notable that 31, you know, Patriot Front folks were arrested. Um, but but we'll see moving forward. And it's definitely something that I'm paying attention to in my reporting. When you, can I ask you about that report on the on the people arrested in, in Idaho? Do you have another minute for that? Yeah. Do, do you know? Uh, do you know things that those of us who've paid just casual attention don't yet know that are going to come out in your article? Like it struck me that apparently it was just a citizen tip that they saw a bunch of men in uniforms, matching outfits, climbing in the back of a truck with weapons. So they called someone, and if that's true, that's a little shocking that the people who follow extremist groups and the FBI who look into this kind of thing didn't have their eyes on that. Do you know anything about that? Was the FBI already poised to do something about this? Or did we just get lucky that an appropriately wide-eyed neighbor, uh, you know, saw men climbing in the back of a truck? This is the purview of a law enforcement reporter or a um, uh, someone who he was well, well versed in our federal law enforcement agencies and they're um, more well sourced, frankly, um, in that area. I know what, what law enforcement officials have said, which is that they've actually pushed back on the notion that it was internal informants that let them know about this group. But again, like you said, they were, they, they're kind of putting in on that somebody saw something and said something um, as an, an indicator of this, um, which is interesting given that it's it was terrifying. pretty well it's known. terrifying that, to uh, me. That it, that, 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 yeah. I mean, like we knew that there were the right-wing groups were pushing people towards this event. Um, and also there was a, um, a reporter colleague of the Huffington Post or Huff Post now um, actually wrote a whole article. Idaho is an interesting subtext for all of this because Idaho um, you should read this report. I can't remember the headline, but it's like white nationalism, Christian nationalism in Idaho in the HuffPost okay. recently um, that kind of talks about how this has become an interesting point of conversation 
out West in that state in particular, the synthesis of white nationalism and Christian nationalism for local um, elections um, and things of that nature. So Idaho's kind of become a flashpoint for the far right in general that I'm aware of Mm -hmm. in terms of a a place to look at, um, which makes the location less surprising. Uh, As for the people who were arrested, Patriot Front, um, uh, an extremism reporter that I follow, they were kind of commenting that, you know, this was an interesting, if, if law enforcement, uh, what they claim is true, which is that they were planning to do, they were planning to commit violence um, or conspiring to riot, which is the charge. Um, that is actually a little bit of an escalation for Patriot Front. They, they've they been more um, vandalism and kind of show of force as opposed to Proud Boys-esque in the sense of on the, on the street violence, which would make the tip, you know, even more important, the fact that they stopped this before it occurred. And I leave it to the courts and the details and uh, the journalists to suss out the accuracy of all that. Um, But at the end of the day, we know that there's been an increased antagonism of LGBTQ events um, and pride events um, in recent weeks, and that those have been pushed by the far right and extremist groups. So many of which have been invoking Christian nationalism uh, and in Christian nationalisms, I, I should point that out. Um, while, while, you know, calling for these kind of counter protests and provocations. Yeah. The group that I, uh, work for, we spent 2020 traveling around the country trying to do a whole number of things. And we ran into these groups repeatedly, uh, one time in Missouri in 2020 in the fall, Missouri had before them a bill that was being sponsored in the house to not allow, uh, people dressed in drag to do story time reading at libraries, something that was really obscure then, but lots of states have tried to pass these don't let drag people do story time, which by the way, it's kind of great that they do story. Anybody reads at public libraries for kids, right? It's just a good thing. They want to pass a law. So there was going to be a, an event uh, saying, we think this is a bad law. So citizens were getting together to say out loud to their state legislators, don't pass this law. And it was at the state capitol. We went to support the people saying, don't pass this law that would say no to, to you know, people dressed in drag, drag Saturday reading. And what we were asked to do, because we're not from Missouri and they want to be a Missouri thing, was to be part of a group called the Paracel Protection, which what we had were rainbow umbrellas, big umbrellas that you would open up and create a human barrier between the protesters and the counter protesters, these white nationalist, supreme, white supremacist, violent groups came up on their motorcycles and wanted to create a bunch of disruption and to intimidate these, these people trying to say to their state legislators, don't, you know, having a little rally about this. So our job was to hold up these umbrellas. And we knew that the reason we were there is we knew that these other people were coming, right? Everyone knew they were coming. They made it public that they were coming and they were going to try to intimidate. And they showed up, you know, dressed kind of like classic bikers and so on and were intimidating and yelling and saying Christian things and, and yelling slurs. And our job was to sort of protect. And they were live streaming all of this, of course. Um, so the other trick that you do when the people live stream is you play Disney music live or really loud, out loud, because then their live stream gets cut off oh, because it's a copyright, because yeah. it's a copyright violation. Yeah, so, so one of the ways that, you know, you stop uh, these white uh, supremacist uh, violent groups from uh, live streaming their their actions as a recruitment tool is to play you know, The Little Mermaid. Really awesome. I, I bring all that up to say, like, when you're organizing a any effort like drag 
readers or LGBTQ, you're very aware that people are going to show up. And it's just so puzzling that we keep acting surprised when these groups show up and do these things. Um, you as a religion reporter, are, are you equally as surprised? Or are you like one of those old grizzled uh, reporters that's like, uh, well, I'll tell you, my time around this town, I've seen all these things. I know I know this is coming, you know, the little stogie in your mouth. I mean, you know, I, I think it's one of those things, shock, not surprise, is a, okay. is a perpetual state of being in my business, right? You know, really since... Uh, I think somebody wrote a whole piece about dating it, like the the perpetual never ending news cycle um, mm. in the modern era began in like November 2015, um, and and it was a very specific catalyst. Um, oh. That it was the it was the terrorist attacks in Paris um, that set in motion a series of events, a conversation around opposition to refugees that actually also led to in candidate Trump's kind of sudden moment of attention, which is when he called for an explicit ban on Muslims entering the country. Um, and it was like that, you know, November, 2015 into December, 2015 to now, it's just been a lot. One new um, cycle. Yeah. One new cycle after another. And, and you can, you can trace it back farther than that. To the Bundy um, kind of stealing, uh, you know, uh, forced takeover of um, that preserve, um, or I might be mixing up a year. I might be blending those together. I don't know if that happened earlier that year or actually, you know, the beginning of the next year. The thing that has been interesting about my beat is that religion has come up over and over and over again as a component of so many of these stories. You know, you're one thing we talk about in our beat, if you're a religion reporter, you're kind of an everything reporter. Because um, even covering the absence of religion is still a religion story. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I I have unfortunately grown kind of accustomed to the potential for um, violence at events and or at least antagonism. Um, you know, and, and I, I fortunately have not, you know, had to be on the receiving end of that. I've, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who do, mm -hmm. um, but it's also an aware, I, I bring that up because it, it's also a point of awareness for journalists because yeah. there are instances in which we have been targeted as well. Um, that's not something I've personally experienced, but it is something that, that we are all increasingly aware of, even just covering average protests here in the district, which are pretty regular, mm -hmm. um, you know, pretty, pretty normative around here. Um, but we're, we keep an eye on that sort of stuff now in a way that we probably didn't before the perpetual news cycle began. Uh, if you have one more minute, I have this the one last thought for you. If you had said, or maybe when you do say to someone, they say, Hey, Jack, what do you do for a living? You're like, well, I'm a religion reporter. And curiously enough, I cover religion and politics. And increasingly that means you know, this kind of dangerous, how, how did you phrase it? Uh, 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 extremism. <laughs> a lot of people would say, oh, you're covering Muslim religious expressions in America because to a lot of people's imagination, when they hear politics, religion, and extremism, they think January or uh, uh, September 11th terrorist attack, these, these kinds of things. Does that happen when you raise that? Because people, you know, in the chat and other places here, they go to this immediately. Like, oh, if you want to talk about extremism, let's talk about, you know, right. other religions, extremism. It seems to me that the, the history has told us that the greatest extremism we have for violence in America is Christian extremism. But does that, do you have any thoughts about that? Or how do you respond to that? Or do people, are they surprised sometimes when, when the major news stories are not, what they often think that they would be from, you know, I guess some 20 year old, uh, 20 year gone by gone story. 
Yeah, I mean the um, throughout the course of my career, that's that's been a recurring you know response when I when I've mentioned that. Um, you know, Christianity doesn't have a monopoly on extremism. I, I have covered you know extremist acts perpetrated by those claiming Islam or Judaism or Buddhism or Hinduism as their inspiration, what have you. Um, you know, like humans who are organized can uh, tend to can commit violence and often will invoke a faith as justification for it. Christianity doesn't have a lock on that. And so I've covered all of those other things as well. I think extremism is important to cover irrespective of um, ideology or mm. theology. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it can happen in um, progressive spaces. It can happen in conservative spaces. It can happen in you name a faith, you know, there's, there's potential for that to occur. That having been said, you know, the when I was covering a lot of extremism early on, um, when I talked when I when I said that back in 2015, 2016, I was actually often referring to attacks on houses of worship, um, synagogues, um, immigrant heavy churches, um, mosques that were being attacked or defaced um, or victims of arson by, um, by you know, by groups. And some, I remember there was a church outside of D.C., whose sign was the face with the slogan Trump nation whites only um, that was uh, right after Trump was elected. And, um, and so that was kind of an element of extremism that I was discussing, but actually it was true at the time that like, again, while there have, while religion has been a component of right-wing extremism in various forms throughout American history, it was not necessarily Mm -hmm. that the core organizing principle for so many groups in the way that, um, you know, extremism defined in a different way now, right, looking different in the aftermath of January 6th and what have you, um, that that now, like, you know, when I mean that, I mean something a little bit different um, in terms of who I'm talking about and who is doing a lot of these acts. Uh, again, you know, the um, Christian national folks invoking Christian nationalism also don't have a monopoly on violence or extremism here in the United States. Others have done it from different political persuasions. But for me, it's always really interesting that for a long time, when you talked to law enforcement officials, what they would often say is one of the most concerning groups. They weren't necessarily mentioning um, those invoking Islam, right? They were talking about um, sovereign citizens or um, other right-wing groups that now have kind of coalesced and meshed and intermeshed with Christian nationalism. Um, and so that seems to still be true in a lot of places, but in a slight, a different way. And ever since Charlottesville, really, um, when we've seen these dif- disparate groups, you know, show a willingness to show up together, you know, right-wing extremism has been, has, as has been explained to me, was often just a story of division and disagreement. Right. And they all like fought together. Um, and that's still true <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. But their tendency and proclivity to organize um, in, right. in, in ways like we just saw this past weekend um, is something that I think has really alarmed a lot of extremism um, you know, experts that I've spoken with, at least. Mm-hmm. And so for me, as a religion reporter, um, you know, yes, I have gotten that, that the answer to the question that, that you mentioned. Um, and, and, and I still get it sometimes. Um, but I do think, you know, it's becoming harder and harder for people to ignore um, that extremism, even if they think, you know, their group isn't doing it, that they don't think, oh, you know, it does seem like any group in America could theoretically participate in this moment. Going back to your question about the state of the Republic, I am more often to get cynicism, irrespective of somebody's religion or political beliefs these days, yeah. um, than one of grand hope mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and, and the, this belief that, that n- Americans would never commit such violent acts. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, 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 
event it will sometimes refer to as Charlottesville, which is code in my world um, for we, we know what happened there. What the people who put that event together called it was unite the right, right? Right. They were working hard to say, now that we have a new president, it's time for us to all come out more publicly, deeply connected to the election of Donald Trump and the things that Donald Trump had said previously and all of that. And then, of course, the then, you know, now failed former president, but at the time, president said, there are good people on both sides. And, uh, and the, you know, uh, what I tried to say to the Proud Boys in the bar in Florida, you know, because it was two days after the Trump-Biden uh, presidential debate where Trump was asked if he would call out the Proud Boys and he said, stand back and stand by, that um, I said, you know, Donald Trump named the Proud Boys as a white supremacist group and they all started screaming at me, no, he didn't, no, he didn't, he supports it. Like it was, it's just, it's an incredible retelling of, of a story. So for people that, you know, wonder, like, are we, are people like us just, people, not, not you, because you're a professional, you know, j journalist, but people like me just piling on, you know, tr j just want to blame Trump for literally everything, you know, and I probably did blame him for everything except gas prices, because it's one of the things presidents don't have anything to do with, but he really just did ruin everything else in my view. Um, but this one's just not even overstating the level to which I think he, he as a person and his, his actions as president really did move this country in a direction of Christian nationalism and violence that was January 6th. And I'm of the mind that, you know, I don't know if I go as far as to say that was a dress rehearsal because I think it was actually horrible in its own right and wasn't practice at all. It was a real thing. But I don't think it was the first one. I think it was, you know, but maybe now in the NBA basketball season, you'd call game one of a seven game series. And it's going to be curious to see who, who wins this thing, uh, you know, to borrow that really bad sports metaphor. Hmm. Any last thoughts from, from you, Jack Jenkins, before I tell people to follow you on the internet at, at Jack Jenkins uh, on Twitter and uh, religion news service to read every article you write and share it with their friends. Yeah. Well, I'm again. I'm about to drop an article related to Idaho. Um, right after I get off, my my editors are pinging me, and so oh no, you're like, hey, by two o'clock, I'll um, be done, and then you know you're still. <laughs> but I, but I will but I will use this opportunity to tell people to read it. But then um, I will also note that um, you know one of the interesting things about Charlottesville to me, again, you know, religion as an, as a core organizing principle for a lot of that, as an overlapping organizing principle for those groups involved, wasn't necessarily the case then in the way that mm. it seems to be more the case for a lot of extremist groups now. Um, at least not as vocally as much. But for me, you know, after Char um, that event occurred and after Trump made his comments, his deeply controversial comments, you mentioned both sides, um, you know, there were there was a moment where, you know, they were trying to get local, uh, um, uh, the networks were trying to get someone from the White House to go, you know, talk about this, to come on and say, hey, could we, and I can't remember if it was CBS or ABC. I think it was CBS, but someone can fact check me on that. Um, you know, they mentioned on air, they were like, look, you know, we called the White House and said, can you send anyone to come and speak to us about this? And they said, no, but you should call Jerry Falwell Jr. at Liberty University. Is and that's that who right? spoke on the president's behalf. And I think that, again, is just part of like this pattern of behavior throughout the Trump era of like, you know, in the midst of controversy and, um, and when, when, when needing support, he would appeal to conservative religious 
um, voices, yeah. actors, leaders, and principles and symbols um, as a component of what you know became described as Trumpism, and the key component of mm. that I love the persuasion of was Christian nationalism. Well, I, I want to just keep talking all day, but I know you got to go to work. Does it feel like <laughs> Jeffries, Pastor Jeffries from First Alice, uh, First Baptist Alice in Florida, pull away from Trump? Some I feel like I heard him a lot, and then he just kind of. I don't know. I didn't hear from him as much. Maybe it's because Jerry Falwell Jr. sort well, of took that spot. But this this is one of the things where I could go on another hour about this conversation. Oh, but what I will say, what I will say is that Christian nationalism in the absence of an ever present Trump, um, which you know when he was kicked off Twitter and Facebook, right, um, has gotten really interesting in that it's like kind of melded and moved in different ways and kind of attached itself to certain um, causes and principles. And one of those major causes was opposition to the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine. And, uh, and Robert Jeffers didn't go down that trail. He was like, no, you should take it. (laughs) So, um, and so that was a dividing point between him and some other members, you know, this was a a champ, a previous champion of Christian nationalism who suddenly felt, you know, somewhat estranged from some of the other leaders of the movement. And so, there's a piece to be written assessing what Christian nationalism looked like in 2016, which was already, by a lot of standards, super weird compared to the religious right of yesteryear, right? And whether that the, the Christian nationalist leaders of 2016 look wildly different from how they look in 2022. That is a story someone should get on, is just, you know, some chronicling of that, yeah, and where the where the Fauci jab fits in as the, as the fork in the river. Uh, people had to... Thank you, Jack. I hope people follow you. Can't wait to read the article uh, that's going to come out and we'll push it and share it around. And uh, thanks for all your good work and for being part of this conversation today. Thanks so much for having me, Doug. All right. See you. Hey, thanks everybody. And uh, if you're watching on any of the places that aren't YouTube, I just let it go everywhere so you can watch it. But go over to our YouTube channel anyway. There's a whole lot of stuff there that you don't see here on the Facebook feed. So if you're still watching, you really care. Go to Vote Common Good on on YouTube. And uh, thanks all for all of your... uh, all of your good comments. Sorry, we couldn't grab any of them in the, in the chat. But we will, uh, we'll be back tomorrow. We're going to be watching the hearings um, at noon. I'm talking with John Pavlovitz uh, about the work that he does at 9 a.m. Central Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, 8 in the mountain, and 7 if you're out on the, on the coast. So, all right, we will uh, talk to you uh, tomorrow with two long live streams. See ya. <laughs>